0: I want to invite you to join with me as we talk about this good God this morning. Go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 for a Bible study this morning. Mark chapter 9. It's no series, but it's just a passage I think is fo- so important for our church family that would like to focus on this morning. We're in Mark chapter 9. There's a story that's told in history about Alexander the Great, that there was a philosopher that had benefited him and helped him out, so he wanted to reward this philosopher. He decided that he would tell this man, you can ask anything, from me that you want and I'll do it for you. Well the philosopher came back after he thought about it and he asked for this phenomenal sum of money and Alexander had told him, whatever you want, go and see the treasurer. Well, that day the philosopher came, comes to the treasurer and tells him about this vast sum of money that he wanted. The treasurer was appalled. He comes to Alexander and he says, Lord, he says, this, this man that you said you would give something to, he is absolutely asking a ridiculous sum of money. And he complained and talked about how he'll really take money out of the treasury and that they shouldn't give it to him and this man is being greedy, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Alexander, listen, to all the complaints. And then he stopped the man. He says that this fella has greatly honored him by his request. The treasurer was dumbfounded. And Alexander went on to say he honored me in several ways. He honored me in the fact that he believed my word. He honored me by the fact that he also believed in my wealth. He honored me by the fact that he believed I would be willing to give him so much. Pay the man what he's asking because he showed so much faith. I wonder If God feels that way about you and I this morning, that we have asked him for things, we have come before him believing in his wealth, his word, and his willingness. Father, I pray, help us as we study the Bible this morning to truly grow in this area of faith to make steps then in this area of faith that will help us to lean upon your word even better, to trust you in your wealth of heaven and your willingness to be able to give to us. Use this passage of scripture to just encourage, challenge, rebuke, as well as to provide us incentives for the days ahead so that we can see even more of your blessings upon our life, our church, and our ministries throughout abroad, here and at home. I pray, Father, that you would help us, help me to be very clear help these folk to be very attentive to your word as we study it this morning together. We pray in your name. Amen. We are looking at a passage of scripture that basically it's in all three of the what's called synoptic gospels and they all put it together the same way. They take two stories and they put the stories back to back. All three of the gospels do this. Matthew 16, Mark 9, Luke 9. And when they put these two stories together man there is a lot from these stories. Both stories have so much detail, so much fact, so much information about Christ, about ministry, about God himself. But when you put them together, those two stories then, they work together to really drive home one major, major point. In order to get that one major point, in order to see how these two blend together, let's do a study this morning. I'm kind of going to do the Bible study the way I would do it in my office, where I work with narrative accounts and kind of lay it out this way. I'm going to take the two accounts. I'm going to have act number one, Transfiguration. Then I'm going to have act number two, The Deliverance of the Boy from the Demon Possession. One of the things I do when I'm doing this Bible study, recommended by Bible teachers, is then I story plot. And I kind of diagram the story. Usually every story has a beginning. It has a climactic point, And then it has a resolution to it. And somewhere in this climactic point in the resolution, they're going to have the message. They're going to have the meaning of the story. So I take my storyline and I kind of make a curve. And I start laying out this plot. And I'm going to put down different things that happen in the account. And I'm going to be able to see the progression of it. Well, here's the story plot. As we lay it out, we're going to, then all of a sudden, okay, we've got to get the setting. It's going to occur, the Mount of Transfiguration, that episode, on top of a Galilean mountain. It is a time where the story plot will unfold, and what we have is Jesus Christ going up to the top of the mountain. He's going to ascend according to Matthew chapter 9 as we read these words, but it's based upon what goes right at the beginning of the chapter. He had said to them, Verily I say unto you that there shall be some of you that stand here which shall never taste death till I, they have seen the kingdom of God with his power six days later. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and leads them up into a high mountain apart by themselves and then he's transfigured. So what we have is the three guys, same three that he's going to take to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible passage here as well as the other count says they are going apart by themselves. Now we understand part of the reason is Jesus is going to show his glory before he dies, before they die. But Luke adds something. Luke gives us one one little phrase that gives a lot more information. It says that they went up to the mount not just to be apart, but to pray. That was the purpose. Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, take the guys aside and we're going to have a prayer time. So Jesus goes up to this mountain to have this prayer time. The disciples do the exact same thing that they'll do in the Garden of Gethsemane. The three of them fall asleep. While they fall asleep or when they fall asleep, the story goes on and what we read in in Luke in particular, it says, as Jesus prayed, then all of a sudden we pick up what the others pick up. It says that Jesus is revealed. His glory is revealed. It says in verse 2, he was transfigured before them and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And then it goes on and talks about how not only in his brilliance, and you see the other accounts. From Mark and Luke, how they say his altar was his altered countenance became even as white as the sun. They're trying to get across that this wasn't just like okay, a bright light that we all of a sudden hit a spotlight or you see a camera flash and you're kind of you're, you're dazzled by it. This is brilliance that is beyond anything that we understand. It's the sun shining at high noon right in your eyes that woke the three guys up they wake up to this brilliant light they see that it's happening and they see there are two of the greatest Old Testament heroes standing next to Jesus our passage gives us the identity of the two it says that verse 4 there appeared unto them Elijah and Moses and they were talking with Jesus so here he is his glory is revealed by his countenance changing to show a little bit of what he was like in heaven as well his greatness seen by the two of the greatest Old Testament saints coming and paying him a visit he's having conversation with them. And then what happens is in this conversation, Jesus is elevated above the others. That leads us to a third thing that I'm going to mark down in my story plot. I'm going to mark down the fact that according to verse 7, okay, God is really really pleased with Jesus. Let's get the setting. Verse 5. Peter answered and said, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three booths or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, where we can kind of just sit and meditate and ponder and we don't have to go down and he was, did not know what to say, but they were sore afraid. Well, that makes sense. These guys are startled; they are just not sure what to say, what to do, and so this just blurts out of his mouth. I was reading an account about a woman who was a few years back, she's in Kansas City, and she's in Hagen Hagen dazs into the the ice cream thing. And she's there, and she orders her ice cream, and as she gets her cone and her chain, she turns, and there standing right behind her, in line, is Paul Newman. He was there, he was filming a film. And she considered him one of her heroes of Hollywood. And she just looked in his face and just kind of melted. Unsure what to say, what to do. The next thing the woman says I remember doing is I'm standing outside the store and I'm thinking, that was Paul Newman, that was Paul Newman. Where's my ice cream cone? Where's my ice cream cone? She said, I went back, opened the door, and here he is coming out. And she's befuddled again. He says, you're looking for your ice cream cone, aren't you? And she says, yeah. You put it with your coins in your purse. Yeah. (laughs) Just startled and didn't know what to do. Well, the disciples are startled. They don't know what to do. And a kind of this blunder comes out of Peter's mouth that says, hey, let's just make this, let's make a worship center. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. That we can just sit and we can talk. And God's response to this is really interesting. God's response is also in this cloud, consumes them. And uh, it says it overshadowed them, verse 7. It's almost like the Shekinah glory. And the voice came out of heaven saying, this one, just this one is my beloved son. Now God has elevated Moses and Elijah before. He has commended them. He has responded by defending them, but not now. Standing next to Jesus, they pale in comparison to him. It is Jesus' brilliance. It is Jesus that God says, I am well pleased in. It is Jesus that, looks at the next phrase, that God tells the disciples to do what with Jesus? What does your Bible read? Hear him listen to him. And it's the idea of keep on listening to him. What is very clear here is Moses who represents the prophets, he wrote most of the, the law, he wrote most of that. Elijah who is the, the representative of the, uh, of the prophets, what is being stated here is Jesus is even greater than the law and the prophets, illustrated to the disciples. The idea that you got to listen to this Jesus. For the disciples it meant something simple. There's a whole lot more to come. We, we're not going to stay up here. We have to go back down and we're going to have to listen and learn from Jesus Christ. We haven't gotten it all taken care of. And what Jesus is going to say is even more important than the law and the prophets that we've studied. And so it's very clear that they've got a lot to do. God wants them but God is elevating the son. My son is great. My son is powerful. Listen to him. Follow him. Do what he says. So we have that in our story plot as we continue as we go on. Let's go to what happens next. Okay. What's obviously declared here, in this comment, Okay, in this conversation, we have the idea that they've been doing conversing, they've been talking, there's been things that have been said. What is being said is really important. Now it's not recorded in this text what the conversation was, what they heard, what they were supposed to be listening to, but we read in other passages what was said. And what it stands out is this, that Jesus, despite all of his glory, there's a big task yet to come. There's more to be done. You've got to listen to him more. He's got more ministry to do. There's a big challenge ahead. And what happens is we read in Luke that what was being spoken about between him, Elijah, and uh, Moses was this. He spake of his exodus, his upcoming death. His upcoming ministry. Now, there was still about another year 14 months left in his ministry. And there's still a lot of work to be done. But the major portion of that is going to be a real challenge to Jesus Christ. He's going to be rejected. He's going to then have to go through that death and that rejection in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is on this mount in his glory. Part of this is Jesus has to decide. Jesus has to determine, which he had already done, is he going through with all this? He's revisiting his glory. He's showing his glory. Is he still going to follow through? Well, he takes the challenge. He obviously does. In fact, watch what happens as they start coming down. And suddenly, when they looked around about verse 8, they saw no man anymore except for Jesus and them. And as they came down the mountain, Jesus charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen until the Son of Man were risen from the dead. Very clear, Jesus is going through with this challenge that he has just talked about. Very clear, watch what happens. They kept that saying amongst themselves, questioning one another. What does he mean he's going to die? And they asked him, saying, why do the scribes talk about Elijah coming first? And he said, Elijah verily does come first and restores all things, how it is written at the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at not or rejected. But I say unto you, Elijah has already come indeed. That's John the Baptist. And they have done unto him whatsoever they have desired, as it is written of him. So there at the mountain, the conversation is, Jesus, you've got a big task ahead of you. You're willing to do that. Jesus says, guys, we have to go down. You have to listen to me. As they go down, he tells them, I'm going to die. He tells them, I'm going to be rejected. And so he's facing all this. Despite his glory, despite his greatness, he's going to submit to this huge challenge that's ahead. His power makes no difference. He's going to be humbled. He's going to submit to it. Well, what you have here as you go on through the story is Jesus is portraying a willingness to face this big task that God has laid out before him. Let's, let's take a next, another thought here, okay? As they come, you know, they're talking in this mountain, it has been clear that the disciples wanted to stay up there. As they come, they have their mountaintop experience. They, they, they're not real, you know, Jesus has to say, arise, let us go. He has to lead them down. Peter would just as soon, with James and John, stay up there. And they would just as soon have this great moment where it's fun. And I don't want to blame them. I don't want to cast too many stones because you and me, we're like that too. If we have a great moment, we want to stay there. Let me see if this isn't true. You have a great vacation. You don't want to come back to work. You have a great summer off of school, you don't want to go back to school. You have a great experience, you, you have a great evening at Hershey Park. You just have so much fun throwing up on all those spinning rides and it's just a thrill. You'd say, I, you would know, say, I just soon stay here and keep on doing these things as opposed to, oh, I'm so excited tomorrow morning you go back to school. We have great experiences. We want them to drag out. We want to have that fun some more. Well, the disciples are having a great experience. It is cool. It is neat. Everything is glorious on top of the mountain, but they've got to come down. And as they're coming down, they don't understand what's going on. He's telling them things that they just are, I don't get it. What does he mean? What's ahead of us? What's in store? And so you have this story plot that goes, and there's a lot of things we could talk about with this story. I mean, we know that life doesn't allow us to sit on the mountaintops. we got to come down. we got to get to reality and get into those situations. And there's so much we could say about Jesus Christ upon this story. But to continue on, let's continue with our story as it flows into the next one. We could talk theology and those, but let's put the two stories together. When you're putting two things together, they're similar, but they're different. When you make comparisons to the next story now with your story plot, you're going to see some things standing out. And especially as you make the comparisons at at accounts that are back-to-back or side-by-side, look for contrasts and similarities. You'll see them real quickly in your story plot. In your storyline that there are several similarities there, and they're all driving to one main point. They're all pointing to what we should do and learn from this text. Let's do our story plot. Okay, Let's do act number two, scene number two. We're talking about the deliverance of the demon boy. They come down from the mountain top. Now they're at the base of the mountain, not at the top of the mountain. The first thing that stands out before us is this. The nine disciples were left to pray. You say, well, where did you get that pastor? Watch the story. Watch how it unfolds. It says, when he had come to his disciples, that is the nine that were left below, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning them. Straightway, all the people, when they beheld him, they're greatly amazed. and They run to Jesus saluting him. And he asked the scribes, what's going on here? What is this question? What is the debate? That's what's happening. When he says, what is your question? The disciples are in a debate with all the different scribes. They're in an argument. What's going on? Why Why are you attacking my disciples? And one of the multitude answered and said, I, I think they're arguing over me. The Jewish leaders and your disciples, I'm, I'm the one that caused the problem. Master, I have brought unto you my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And whereso, wheresoever he takes him, that is, the spirit takes his son, he tears him. He foams, he gnashes with his teeth, he pines away. I spoke to your disciples, because you weren't here, that they should cast him out, but they couldn't do it. He answered to his disciples, Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. They brought him, the boy, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, that is when the boy, the demon, sees, straightway the spirit tears him. And the boy fell on the ground and wallows in the foaming. And Jesus looks at the father and says, How long has this been going on? Since a child. And oftentimes, the demon casts him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And straightway, the father of the child cries out, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Jesus saw that the people were coming closer and closer he rebukes the foul spirit saying unto them thou dumb and deaf spirit i charge you come out of him and enter no more into him the spirit cried rent the boy's sore came out of him and the boy was as one dead inasmuch as many in the crowd by the time they get up there they go the kid's dead he's dead but jesus leans over takes the boy by the hand lifts him up and the boy arose When he was come into the house, so now they're away from the scene, they're in private. The disciples said, Why is it we couldn't cast him out? And Jesus said, This kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. He's disappointed that the disciples didn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Because they had been left behind to pray. Oh, by the way, the other three were taken up into the mountain to pray, and what did they do? They fell asleep. Kind of leaves you with the thought that you can kind of guess what the other nine were doing. They weren't praying. And Jesus rebukes them and says, hey, come on, this has got to have covered with prayer. You were supposed to be praying before it happened. It didn't happen. You didn't pray. So leaving them behind, they didn't do what they were supposed to be doing. They failed. They failed in being able to deal with the demon because they failed to be praying. Let's take another stop. Another step in this. As a result of their failure, their weak faith was revealed. Whereas Christ in his glory was being revealed, here, the weakness of his disciples are being revealed. By contrast to Christ, they are, you and I are, small. But in this case, their weakness of their faith. Their faith that they were supposed to have, that they were supposed to be able to do, Jesus has to look at them and say, oh, faithless generation, how long? How long has it been? Now, what I find interesting is he didn't turn to the man and say, oh, your son wasn't healed because the faith healers lacked faith, or because you lacked faith. He turns and says, the reason the boy wasn't healed is you faith healers didn't have the faith. He's very pointed, very blunt with this. That gives me to another thought. Okay, just as the father was pleased with Christ, Christ is displeased with his disciples, with his followers. It is very clear in this text. He has to rebuke them. They are faithless. He's displeased because number one, number four is this in the story plot. They had faced a great task. They had a challenge that was laid before them, just like Christ has a challenge laid before him on the mountain, willing to take it. These guys had a great task. They were willing to take it, but they failed. They failed in their task. They don't succeed. Now, understand this. And let me let this sink in a little bit more. This task that was laid before them was huge. It was was ginormous. It was a phenomenal task laid before them. Think through the account. This guy brings a boy to the disciples. It is stated in Luke, it is his only son. It is stated that this boy's condition is so severe. He's got everything. We've already read some of this. Foaming, epileptic type seizures. He is being thrown about. The demon demon is dealing with this boy, so this boy is pining away. This boy is, according to the other text, he just loses control. He falls down. The demon is dominating this boy. In fact, when Jesus gets near the demon, the demon attacks the boy again. It is just ongoing. And the father is asked, you know, how long has this been going on? Since he was a little child. And it's a different word used here for son and child, indicating this has been going on for years. This huge task, this, this kid is just being abused and molested by this demon and it won't stop. It's to the point that, that this child's life is in danger. The demon tries to kill him. His kid's walking along throws him in the water. Kid's walking along and they have open fireplaces throws him in the flames. What would you do? It would feel like if this was your child, this would feel like this is an impossible situation. So you bring them to the one who's doing the impossible. Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been, been uh, helping people for the last few weeks and months. No wonder the dad made the trek. Come to Jesus. Jesus isn't there. Let's ask the disciples. They're close to Jesus. They had gone out and they had cast out demons. They had healed people just weeks before. Why? Let's have them do it. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. In fact, it gets so bad that when Jesus says to the demon, get out, the demon attacks the boy, and what does everybody think? The boy, it's so severe that what is it? He's dead. He's dead. This boy is just, this is a big, big, big task. This is a phenomenal job that's left to the disciples. And yet, I want you to keep, keep this in mind. As big as this job is, as, as phenomenal as it is, Jesus expected them to succeed. He knew they could have succeeded. He knew that that the idea that they cannot say to him, it was too big for us. He says, that's just not true. Oh, faithless generation, you should have been able to do something. As big as this task is, I expected you to succeed, and I know you could have succeeded. I gave you the tools to succeed. And he rebukes them. They could not say to him, we couldn't handle it. They could. He knew they could. They just didn't handle it right. God, in his wisdom, shows how this was not impossible. Jesus takes over, cleans up the mess. They think the boy is dead. We read already Jesus goes, picks the boy up, and everybody marvels. According to Luke, they are marveling at the goodness and the greatness of God. Clear demonstration that Christ has the power. Clear demonstration that he could handle this. And he expected his disciples to do the same thing. Absolutely clear. These guys failed. They had a big job and they failed. Can I I ask you a question? Do you have any of these big jobs? Do you have these things that seem absolutely impossible to you? Overcoming a besetting sin. Getting the guilts out of your life. Getting an event with a people conflict that's been going on for years, getting it resolved. Getting out of debt seems impossible at times. Coping with a loss of a loved one. How can I function? How can I move on? There's, nothing, there's no hope. Dealing with a major problem. You've got a hard-hearted relative. You've got a hard-hearted mother, parent, father. You have a hard-hearted child, brother, sister. You want to win them to Christ, and it seems like this is never going to happen. You want to restore a broken marriage. And it seems like this is too hard. You've got a parent that is impossible to please. No matter what you do, it is always wrong. To the point that you just, you want to give up. You've got a marriage where you are not on the same page. And you've got to come somehow figure this out. How are we going to raise the kids? Because we are constantly disagreeing on raising the kids you got situations that you say, okay, I've got this besetting sin, it's porn, it's gossip, it's greed. You've got this difficulty of overcoming a habit like smoking, cussing, cursing. You, you say, what, you know, God, what do I do? I, I, I just can't finish this, it's too big. You're struggling with whether or not you should tithe or not and coming into that hurdle of faith that you say I need to do this. Does God really want me to do vocational ministry? Should I really yield to that? I'm trying to think through what, what God would have me to do with my life. Seems like an impossible thing. It seems like it's too incredible. To stand up for Christ at school and to declare your faith at work. It's overwhelming. I can't do it. God, this is too much for me. You don't understand. You don't understand. God expects you to be successful in doing his ministries. He expects you to have a good marriage, to reach out and have boldness, to restore those conflicts, to live without this indebtedness dominating you. He expects you to overcome the besetting sin, to handle your trials and rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. The issue isn't with God and His power. The issue isn't that God has failed you by putting you in those situations. God wants you to be successful and no matter how hard it is, he has laid out for you his expectation. Success. The question is how? How do we do that? I want you to catch one more thing. That is in the story plot, the disciples had wanted to stay on the mountain. Here, they want to know where do we go wrong. Now, I'll give them credit. The disciples, give them credit, they asked, where did we go wrong? Many of us, when we have made a mistake, we just as soon forget the mistake immediately and not talk about it. Where we blew it. Where we said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, offended and, and did something you know, stupid. We just as soon not talk about it. Now, they, didn't, they wanted to talk about it. And they went in private and they asked Jesus, you know, what did we do? And Jesus points out to them what they need to do to correct in the future. So, here's the big question. God has given you challenges. It's not unusual. Jesus Christ had challenges, you're going to have them. He's given you challenges. You've not been real successful with them. Do you want to know how to become successful? Or is it, let's just ignore it, let's just keep on doing what we've been doing let's just kind of just do the church thing and we'll, we'll finish our, our time here and we'll fulfill our obligation and we'll do our little purgatory here at you know, Faith Baptist Church. We'll get out of the service and then we're right back to the same stuff on Monday. Getting angry, getting upset, giving in to the temptation, offending, not resolving. But the Word of God is calling you, God's Spirit is calling you to have success in your life when you are facing overwhelming obstacles. And so what do we do with this? Let's notice the lessons to live by. They are real simple. The lessons to live by from both of the accounts put together is this. There are always, always great tasks and challenges to be faced. They are always there. We can't stay on the mountaintop and just pretend it's not there. But you have to realize You're not alone in your trials. Jesus Christ even had challenges. Even when he was showing his glory, he's talking about a challenge that's ahead of him, in a life and death challenge. They are there. We all have them. Every one of us, they may differ in degree, but they are a part of our life. We are expected to come off the mountaintops and to face our challenges. And they can be faced successfully by followers of Christ. Number one, I have to remember this. This is a part of my life. This is a part of your life. There will always be challenges. Then let's take it a step further. Okay? What about us as a church? Are there challenges for us? There are some huge challenges as I see what's ahead over these next few weeks and months for Faith Baptist Church. I think there are tremendous challenges. There are tremendous ministry opportunities that we could either do well, or we could blow it before the Lord. Not just on a personal basis, but on as a community basis. We've got the challenges of doing the children's outreaches here in the community. The safe time. The teen revolutions that are going to be picking up to say, let's do a little bit more outreach. Let's try to get the word out. Let's try to reach some of those teens that you go to school with. And some of you say it's impossible to reach them. They don't even believe the Bible. They talk in class like they're an atheist. Or they talk in class like they believe things contrary to the Bible. But they can be reached you can reach them. There's the challenges of Bible school. Some of you know that there's an impossibility to Bible school. You come, you sit in the middle of all the screaming, and the impossibility is you'll ever hear again. Okay. The challenge. Trying to reach into a community seems like it's impossible. we got multiple mission trips that are taking place in the next 8-10 uh, weeks that are going to seem like, whoa, how are we going to get these things done? It's been suggested to me just past, this past week or two, Pastor Travis came up and started talking about, let's do some special recognition services. Let's do something to acknowledge some of these community servants to try to reach out and to help them. Some people, let's, let's try to reach maybe the police. And you say, well it's impossible to reach them because those are very stoic individuals and they're very strong individuals and they are people that aren't being moved but maybe we can reach them with the gospel. Maybe we can help them through some of the battles they go through with what they have to deal with and the fears that they have to deal with and the threats they have to deal with. But we can reach out. Maybe we need to really be thinking about, wow, we've got a big task ahead. Neighborhood night. It's in September. You say, what are you talking about in September? Because June, July, August are the months that we really need to be preparing to do it right. And to do it better than what we've done in the past, to have some type of evangelistic outreach during the course of that evening, whether it be puppet ministry, whether it be something that we incorporate that evening to share the word of God. Seems impossible to get this all done in in the midst of your vacations and our vacations and all these weddings, which we have six of them coming up. How are we going to get all this stuff done? Plus all the stuff that you have to do and our regular ministries. And we have to consider how to reach into the ethnic community of our, commu- of our town. We are not a diverse-looking church, but Lebanon is diverse. What do we do to really fulfill this commission of reaching into the, into the community? Do we need to have translators trying to translate the service while it's happening, so somebody who doesn't speak the language can sit in here and hear what's going on, God bless translators trying to keep up with me. <laughs> that will be an impossible task. What about, what about our grieving community? We have been dumped on the last year and a half with a tremendous amount of peoples who are grieving. What can we do as a church to provide a support group for those in our community of church grieving and use that as an opportunity to expand out to others who are grieving as well? These are challenges. These are opportunities that we need to consider and we need to look at and say, Jesus Christ isn't making a mistake by allowing us to be in this town and watching the ethnic change the face of our community. We are here for a reason. We are here seeing peoples going through the different events for a reason. And Second Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 uh, calls us to say those who go through trials are given those trials at times to help others to go through the trial. We're obligated. We've got to do more. We've got to reach out some way. How do we squeeze it all in? Impossible? No, it's a challenge. Overwhelming? No. Not if we do it the way Christ tells us to do it. He has given us the formula to successfully face the tasks and the challenges. It's in this ta- text. We all have challenges. We do as a church body, but he's also given us the key for success. And there's one key for success. I was reading about a little, uh, little girl. She's with her family. They're vacationing in this area, and as they go through this new year, New York community, she sees this playground. That is a wonderful playground. And so they know that they've been in the car long enough. You know how it is when you have little kids in the car. Five minutes is long enough. And so you're on this long trek. They stop and the parents are all excited. We're going to run. We're going to be in the playground. Wear off some energy and then she can sleep. And they get up and it's locked. The gate to the playground is locked. The little girl is just non-phased. She turns and she says, Daddy, you have lots of keys on that key ring. You can open it. What she doesn't know is it takes one special key, right? Well, that's the same as what Christ is saying in this text. He's talking to disciples who didn't keep up with the challenge because they didn't get that one key. The one key that they needed to do the tax. He tells them what it is. Now, it does not include, and here's where you and I struggle, to face the challenges and the tasks, we often rely on this stuff. We rely on personal experiences. We look back and say, well, I've done it before. This is the way I did it. And the disciples did do it before. The disciples did cast out demons. The disciples did successfully purge out peoples who had this type of illness and problems that were a result of demons. They had done it in Matthew chapter 10 when they went out and preached. They as well had a desire They were willing to do it, but willingness and desire is not enough alone. You and I, hey, I have a desire. I have a desire for the Vikings to finally win the Super Bowl. It is not enough. There's got to be something there. I have a desire to play sports. Willingness is not alone to make me athletic. These disciples, they had a willingness and a desire that we could, we could just do all these things. That can't, you can't rely on willingness alone. You can't rely on personal experience. And that's the problem with you and me. I'm sorry. That's the problem with me. Is that it's too easy to rely on past successes. Maybe we need a little bit more failure at times so we become more dependent on Christ. So what happens here? is they have to learn it's not numbers alone. They got one demon against nine disciples. Surely they should be able to beat them. Numbers alone, let's take the lesson as Faith Baptist Church. Numbers alone will not make us successful. Numbers of people who come, numbers of people on staff, it is not the key. Now, are those things needed? Do we need for ministry to have a facility and finances and folk? Yes. But that is not the key to success. You can have all the finances, all the folk, and all the facilities and still not do a work for God. What do we do? The key is this. O faithless and foolish generation. It's faith. It's simple faith. How does it read in Matthew 17, the parallel account? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mountain, move here or move there and it's going to move. It will happen if you have that faith. And that's where he's saying what we need to do is we need to have that type of faith where we are believing. Now that idea of the faith of the mustard seed is getting a thought across. It is the smallest seed that they would know there in their region. And he's saying it doesn't mean you know, you've got to pump yourself up in faith and you've got to have this. It's saying you couldn't even have small faith as long as it has growth potential. As long as this small seed has growth potential, you can succeed. As long as you base your faith on the right thing, Christ, not experience, not willingness and desire, not numbers, but you base it upon Christ. Then he says you will be able to be successful. Not relying upon yourself. Not trusting in yourself. (laughs) I like this formula. The algebraic formula. My faith plus God, it moves mountains. And my faith is zero. It's very little. It's relying upon God more and more and more. That is so hard to do. I am one of those people when I ride in the car, I am not a good passenger. I know I'm the only one in this room. Okay? But I'd rather be in control. So when we traveled back and forth to seeing our parents in Minnesota, I would do almost all the driving until about 4 o'clock in the morning. At that time, I'm really tired, and I would say, Deb, it's your turn to drive because I'm tired. I'd wake her up, have her get behind the wheel. She would drive, you know, maybe about 15 minutes, because at the end, at one, she's tired, but all of a sudden when I'm resting in the car, if she swerves a little bit, what'd you do? <laughs> what'd you do? I know I'm the only one in the room. Okay. All of a sudden we'd be going down the road and she hit the rumble strips. What'd you do? Don't you see those things on the road? You're going to wake the kids. Okay. Rest a little bit and all of a sudden I'd feel slowing way down. What'd you do? You know, what are you? You know, and I'd be doing this with my foot, you know, via the gas. Again, I'm the only one in the room that does this stuff. I'm sure. So I I, I don't do that well, passenger. And uh, a week and we a couple weeks ago, in the last couple weeks, I've had knee surgery, and so with knee surgery, the doctor says you can't drive. That's what the doctor says. Okay. In my mind, that's what the doctor says. Okay. In my wife's mind, that's what the doctor said, okay? So it was a reminder again that, okay, Debbie, you have to drive. You got to pray for her. But she puts up, you know, I may be medicated, but what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I have a real tough time letting somebody else drive. That transfers at times into my walk with the Lord. I love the Lord. So do you. I'm glad to serve the Lord. I will gladly drive my life wherever he wants. But I want to drive my life wherever he wants. And there are times where he's saying, I want the steering wheel. And I'm fine to let him have the steering wheel as long as I know where you're going. What are you doing now? What's happening here? When are we turning? When are we stopping? Why? I don't want rumble strips in my life. Oh, Lord, you just hit a pothole. Ouch. And he's saying we have to come to a point in our life for to have a success is we realize it's not us. It's not us. We live by faith, not by sight. We rely upon the Lord more and more and let him have control. And do you know what it leads to? God-pleasing, success-bearing faith is that which moves us to pray. You can say you've got the faith of the world. You've got so much faith. It's not true if you aren't praying. He says in this text, you can move the mountains, you can do all these things, but he says at the end when he's talking with them, he says this can only be done by the prayer and the fasting. And he makes it very, very clear. Now, I understand some of you are using different translations. And some of you, if you're sitting in Matthew, you're going to say that phrase, fasting, isn't even in Matthew. And some of you who are sitting with an ESV may be saying, I don't even see that phrase of fasting sitting in Mark. Let me explain something to you. Matthew, where it says fasting and praying, praying and fasting, in Matthew there is a number of old, old manuscripts in the Greek that it is questionable. The preponderance of the manuscripts don't have the phrase and fasting. And so many of the critics, and many of the scholars say it probably was an addition into Matthew. Mark's passage, however, is a little bit different. Mark, of all the ancient manuscripts, almost every single one but two have fasting included. But the modern day scholars say this, since it was added in Matthew, it was probably added here. And as one editor put this comment, he says, Fasting was more of a practice in the, old, in the olden days. We don't do it or need it as much in the present days, so we're going to delete it from the modern translation. I say this, if the preponderance of the evidence is it belongs in Mark, leave it in Mark and leave it as a practice for you and I to consider. In fact, let's talk about this praying and fasting. What this text, Jesus is calling to do, is saying, you and me actually praying is our demonstration of faith. That is the faith. When we come to God and we pray before God and saying, God, we need you. God, I want you to work in this way. So what he's calling for us is to personally pray. Not others pray about our, our tasks, but you Pray about your tasks. Me, pray about this task, about the debt, about the overcoming, about the boldness, about about the reconciliation. Personally pray. He is saying as well that we need to persistently pray. This is ongoing, guys. This cannot be done. These tasks, these these obstacles, these challenges, it requires ongoing prayer and fasting. In fact, it has to be so ongoing that you are praying and fasting before the obstacle arrives, before the challenge gets there. It is not a crises type of mentality that many would think is Christian, but it's not by the words of Christ. You and I are to make this part of praying and fasting a part of our life so that even before they come with a demon boy, we are prayed up. We are fasted up so that we have the ability to be successful spiritually. It's persistent praying. It is prioritized prayer. What I mean by that is saying that prayer is so critical, I am willing to give up time eating. Whoa! That's huge for some of us. Some of you, it's no problem. But some of us, we love our eating. I love my eating. I'm so bad that yesterday at Don Paul's funeral service, when they're giving a tribute to Don and they talk about food, my stomach starts growling at a funeral. Because I love to eat, especially healthy things, chocolate chip cookies. That's just, that's it. Not coconut, but chocolate chip cookies. And he's saying, give it up. Give some times up of things that you really, really love. Give it up. And show that prayer is so important, it is more important than a Big Mac. It is more important than that cheesecake. Getting God to give us help and strength and ability is more important than that pizza it is critical, he says, that we prioritize our prayer life so that we devote to prayer to the point that we will even give up some of our daily routine to be involved with prayer, special prayer on occasions. But here's the bottom line. You've got to practice it. Not talk about it. Not intend to do it. Not think that, oh, I'll, yeah, that's something that when I get to be graduated from high school, then I'll start doing it. When I, when I finish college, then I'll start doing it. When we have kids, then I'll start doing it. When I get retired, I'll have more time, then I'll do it. Come on, folk. He is calling his disciples to praying and fasting now. Here in this time in this life. And he's saying you got to do it. So I ask you this. Taking this account and putting it together, would you consider committing to Christ one or all of these three things? Would you consider being willing to set aside every day over the next couple of weeks more time in daily prayer than what you have been? To say, I will exercise more faith. We've got challenges, I've got challenges, and I am willing to say 10 minutes a day extra in prayer. I am willing to do it. Now, give me that dead stare. Start wrapping up your Bibles. Well, you know I'm winding down. You can feel it coming. So, all of a sudden, let's just shut down shop right now without considering this? No. I want you to mark a yes or no. You declare before Christ, what would you do? In all seriousness. Now, some of you would say, no, I'm not going to. That's your choice. Some of you are going to say, yes, I will. That's your choice. But declare like a disciple of Christ. Come to Christ and say, why haven't I had this? Tell me why. He's showing you. He's showing you why. This can only happen by prayer and fasting. What are you going to do with it? Where are you going to take this? Yes or no? Yes or no, what are you going to do with prayer? Spend some more time? Yes or no? Are you willing to join in and set aside the Wednesday evening, whether it be here or at home? We set aside the first Wednesday evenings of every month for prayer time to focus in on covering ministries in prayer. Are you willing to do it? You claim to be a part of the church, then do the most important part. Are you willing to say, wait a minute, I can give up a Wednesday night. Yeah, I can turn off my TV. Yeah, I can stop going shopping. I can do something. Maybe you can't be here on that night because of other obligations that you made. Would you be willing to set aside time that night or night one of those surrounding nights and pray fervently for some of these ministries that God would use us as a body? The answers, yes or no. Would you be willing in the course of this month, put aside two meals. In sometime in June, two meals. In July, two meals. In August, two meals. And spend that time in prayer. Would you be willing? The answer is a simple yes or no. Some of you can't physically because of your health issues. Understand that that may be the case. But would you then devote com- comparable time to saying, this is where I'm going to focus. This is how I'm going to do this. I am going to pray. And I am going to fast. And I'm going to see what God can do and how God will work in an unusual way. Let me read. Small congregation in, down in Tennessee, Parksburg, Tennessee. Great smoke. He's built a new sanctuary on a piece of land willed to them by a church member. Ten days before the new church was to open, the local building inspector informed them that the parking lot was too small. Until the church could double the size of the parking lot, they would not be able to use the new sanctuary. Unfortunately, the church had, had undersized the parking lot and they had used every inch of their land except for the very back portion of their property, which was at the base of the mountain against which they had built. And so, in order to build more parking spaces, they would have to move part of that mountain out of their backyard. Undaunted, the pastor announced the next Sunday morning that he would meet with, that evening with all the members who would have mountain moving faith. They would hold a prayer session asking God to remove the mountain from the backyard and somehow provide enough money to have it paved and painted before the scheduled opening dedication within the next couple weeks. At the appointed time, 24 of the congregation's 300 members showed up for prayer. They prayed for three hours. At 10 o'clock, the pastor said, Amen. We'll trust God that we open a schedule within the next two weeks. The next morning, he's working in his study. There comes a loud knock on his door. He yells, come in, and here comes this rough-looking construction foreman removing his hard hat as he entered. Excuse me, Reverend, I'm from the blank-and-blank construction company over in the next county. We're building a huge shopping mall over there, and we need some fill dirt. Would you be willing to sell us a chunk of that mountain behind the church? We'll pay for the dirt to be removed. We'll pave, then, the exposed area free of charge. Would you be willing? (laughs) The guy fainted and said yes. The article concludes the little church was dedicated the the Sunday after as originally planned and there were far more members within that church that had mountain moving faith than they did before. That's a true story. That's not everybody's story. But the story of your and my life can be this. We can be successful in the challenges we face if we do it Christ's way. And if we follow by putting faith actively into prayer and fasting.